We've gotten kind of used to this, you know, uh, I, I myself, although I feel like I've been uh, in church quite a bit in the last few days, but it seems like um, we've gotten used to kind of a slower pace, kind of getting up late, not knowing what day of the week it is, because Christmas is, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, and then you've got the weekend already, then you weren't working, and then maybe Friday the boss closed the office because you didn't want to heat the office and all that, so who knows what day it is anymore, but we're back on Sunday. We're back here on Sunday, and I thought it would be good to start your New Year's with a little quiz, a little quizzy. Um, So what I'm going to do, you see you've got no choice in the quiz, but I'm going to read a section of the prologue from a famous work of literature. The English people are all sitting up straighter now. And you can tell me the name of the work, okay? All ears on deck. Okay, it goes like this. In the beautiful city of Verona, where our story takes place, a long-standing hatred between two families erupts into new violence, and citizens stain their hands with the blood of fellow citizens. Two unlucky children of these enemy families become lovers and commit suicide. Their unfortunate deaths put an end to the parents' feud. Answer is, look at that, Romeo and Juliet. You're very good. You're good. That's Shakespeare, of course. And, uh, and since you did so well on that, I'm going to do a second one. That was kind of an easier gimme. I want you to start feeling good about yourselves. And then we're going to go a little harder. Uh, but this one shouldn't be that much difficult. Uh, okay. I know you're going to just jump at this one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A Tale of Two Cities. Now, what's the second line? Oh, smart. Smart. You thought you were so smart. Now, I knew I could catch you because everybody at 745 did the same thing. Oh, A Tale of Two Cities. But what's the second line? Okay, it goes like this, and you're going to have to play along. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of... Oh, that was good. Foolishness. It was the epoch of belief... It was the epic of, oh, I like that, incredulity. There's a word you don't use, incredulity, disbelief. It was a season of light. I know you can get this one. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Oh, discontent, yes. That's another book. We had everything by us. We had nothing before us. Oh, that was very good. We are all going, we were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct. Nobody's shouting it out now. The other way. That's really what it is, the other way. Yes, a tale of two cities. So anyway, you have done well. You have done well. And no, you haven't accidentally walked into an English literature classroom. Uh, That is not what I really meant to do. But I wanted you to fuel your imagination about prologues, about what prologues do uh, for the story, for a familiar theater uh, uh, play that you're reading or for novels which you read. And, uh, And maybe you don't read the prologue if you want to really get into it. Some of you maybe skip it. But you should not skip the prologue. They give an introduction, you see, to the content 
and the themes of the work that's going to follow, they, they kind of frame the storyteller's um, points and the storyline and give us a lens through which to understand the whole book or work of, of writing. And these opening verses reflect the author's goals and the perspective that you're about to experience through that author's uh, human story. Okay? So, fast forward. It's the second Sunday of Christmas now. Uh, Christmas is, you know, um, <clears throat> 12 days after Christmas, the song that we sing. They're really liturgically correct because on Epiphany is the end of the Christmas season, which is on Tuesday the 6th. And so we are referring now to the second Sunday of Christmas gospel reading, which you just heard. Very, very famous, and we've heard it almost three times already in this Christmas season, John 1, 1 to 18. Often referred to as the prologue, the prologue to John's gospel. In other words, it's in that, or there's a whole story told in a nutshell, and the themes are introduced that John is going to portray in his writing. So let's take a minute to look at that prologue one more time and see what the entire storyline is about. Namely, the introduction to Jesus as the Word made flesh, God's Christmas baby, as some call him. God's Christmas baby. The first three words, in the beginning, you may have heard those before in Scripture, hopefully. In the beginning, the creation story, the very first words in the, in the Bible at all, in Genesis 1. Before the world was, the Word already existed. This is going to be mind-boggling kind of talk here. The Word existed before the world was created. And that Word was with God, the Creator. And that Word was God. In other words, God is choosing to recreate God's self in Jesus. That's the first time actually I had read that when I was preparing for this. That's an interesting thing. God is recreating God's self. That's, that's really a, a, an amazing miracle. In Jesus. Jesus born in flesh into the world at Christmas time, called the incarnation, the enfleshment. Incarnate is to be in the flesh and blood. The enfleshment of God in our midst. And he came into the world, but the prologue says, the world knew him not. Still true. Nor did his own people accept him. Still true. But those who believed in him, the Message Bible, our more freeform Bible says, those who believed in him, he made them their true selves, their child of God's selves. Why did God come? To make us truly who we're meant to be in God's eyes. The word became flesh and blood, says the Message Bible, and moved into the neighborhood. I love that. Moved into the neighborhood. And no one has ever seen God. But this one-of-a-kind God expression has made him plain as day. Now, in the middle of the revelation of the prologue in John's Gospel, John inserts another strange detail, mainly that there is a witness in the middle of this named John. Now, we always think that that's probably John the Baptist, but this first John reference is really to John the disciple, the beloved disciple, the youngest one, the last one who supposedly survived, and he is now writing this gospel story. So in the middle of uh, the Christmas prologue is a witness, 
So what's the outcome of Christmas? You're supposed to witness right away to what Christmas has done and is in your lives around the world. And then we go back to the story. So it says um, that John was a witness. It was not the Baptist witness, but he was sent to witness to the world about Jesus so that all might believe in him. And so our assignment is clear. Right in the prologue, we are to be witnesses like John. We are to be witnesses that a new creation, God, has arrived and that has begun to be a world full of grace upon grace. Now, in two days, as I said, January 6th, it's Epiphany, and we celebrate the light of the world. And the light goes on for, it depends on our church year calendar, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks of Epiphany until we begin Lent. And what happens is during Epiphany, the wise men really come. They weren't really there when Jesus was born, as we always portray. I don't want to break anybody's manger scene images, but, you know, the wise men probably came two years later as they had to go and hear about the news. They had to travel with their camels. They had to go over land and deserts to get there and bring their gifts. And so Epiphany really is a time when the world, the globe, becomes aware of who Christ is. That's why they come from all different countries, only three wise men. Why were there three wise men? This is your other quiz question. Were there, why were there three? Only three men got the, got the news? Well, how many gifts were there? There were three gifts, so there had to be three wise men. That's about as deep as that selection goes. You should really do some scripture study and find out some of these important facts. That's really true, yeah. And, and so we have kind of squished them all into this Christmas night scene, but really, theologically, it was only the shepherds there. They didn't have kings coming. The point was to come to a lowly stable where nobody knew who he was and, none of the, and the outcasts of the village are the shepherds who stink and nobody wants them at their dinner table. They were the ones who got the news first, okay? Not, not wise men in crowns and in all kinds of, you know, royal attire who were really astrologers. We know they weren't really kings. They were astrologers who studied the stars, etc. So the, uh, the point is really deeper than that. The word finally travels all the way to these secular people. And they come all the way to pay homage. And they are from all different countries. And so now the light is extended from the manger scene from Bethlehem out into the global village as they go back home again. It's a really wonderful story. And so Epiphany begins January 6th, and so does the world's awareness of who Christ is. All right, that's enough about the prologue's function. I just thought I'd give you a little warm-up. But here's, here's the practical challenge I have for you this year and for me, because I was trying it on first, you know, as I think about these things. Um, every year we make or attempt New Year's resolutions. This is the season for New Year's resolutions. It's a very brief season, and it's very quickly over. Um, and so we make our promise. Number one in America is lose weight, exercise more. Maybe nowadays we're limiting the cell phone at dinner and all this so we don't all fall into a ditch walking down the street. We limit it when we go downtown or walk into fountains and things like that in the mall. Um, and maybe a little less computer use. I think maybe we should also put on there some time where we do absolutely nothing but sit and look out the window. That's a whole other sermon that's coming, but uh, there's this great book called uh, Stillness. Uh, and the degree that your life is jam-packed with all kinds of noises, bleep, you know, beepers like you're sitting on a conveyor belt with all the things going on, there is no time to really experience God or what 
you're meant to be or who you are. You have to just be away from everything. That's kind of the women's retreat ad. But anyway, you sit every day for 15 or 20 minutes and do nothing. And things come into your mind that you hadn't even known where they came from. Creative things begin. You need to just be and be still. And then, as the scripture actually says, be still and know that I am God. You can't be busy all the time and hear my voice. So the prologue's function. I'm going to ask you and myself to raise your spiritual bar a little bit this year, if you will take the time, and ask yourself, what is my 2015 prologue for my life? In other words, what is the theological foundation of all that I do and strive for with my gifts and my life and my family and my, my job and everything that I am? Because if you are a baptized Christian, a believer, then you have had the power of this world washed away and drowned from you, and you have been born a child of God. And so your whole life is meant to have a theological framework. Just as, not as Jesus, we cannot imitate completely Jesus, God knows. But when we are a child of this God, our life takes on a whole new direction. What is the theological foundation? What image do you carry of God in your head and in your heart? Is it the grace upon grace revealed by God's Christmas, or is it some distant, negative, kind of quiet rulemaker God? What God resolutions will frame your life, your parenting, your beliefs, your generous sharing of resources this year? I'm pushed a little to think about this myself as I'm almost up to 30 years of ordination I thought I'd be a pastor maybe five years, give it a try on, and then move on. Well, God had a sense of humor, and here I am. But then you begin, you know, as you get on in years, to think about, well, what have I actually accomplished? Where am I going? What have I done? What is my theme, my prologue as a pastor? And also, I am looking at the council as being wonderful to uh, give me maybe a sabbatical in the early summer months. And so one has to frame for council what... What are your goals? What are you going to do? What are you going to accomplish? What do you want to enrich in your, in your theological studies that will come back to Upper Dublin and enrich us? So that's a pretty heavy thought process. So I'm in this already. I want you to suffer along with this process and your year as well. So what is your prologue that's going to frame this year for you? Caroline Lewis, who I, I'm very indebted to because she's professor preaching at uh, Lutheran seminary in St. Paul, and she, uh, she writes every week a great, you know, thought-provoking way to tack your sermon, uh, and I, I take this directly from her. She says, here's your personal homework. Ask yourself, what themes will orient your life this year? Are you retiring? Are you still looking for a job? Have you been laid off? Are you going to have a, start a family? Um, you have kids going to college? Are you having weddings? Or what themes are in your life this year and what will orient you? And what claims about God, then, that make a claim on your own identity will matter to you? What claims about God make a claim on your identity and will matter for you this year? Another way to think of it, says Caroline, is we all act as a character in our own life scripts. 
But sometimes the script has to be altered in spite of disappointment and unmet expectations, not only for the sake of how you want to live your life, but how you need God to be in your life. And John is clear today, it's about a radical realization that life cannot be the same once God is given the reins. That's kind of what we're all afraid of. Life won't be the same, and yet maybe we're not so happy with the life we have, but we don't want to give it up. And so that is your prologue homework. These past weeks, I've listened to people facing unexpected illnesses. God knows that Upper Dublin this year, last two years, has had time and time and time again. Each week, people who have fallen ill, who have cancer, who have uh, operations, who have taken the emergency uh, down to the hospital, it's just been extraordinary. Including now, uh, prayers for Joanne Fall, our council president, who had uh, a surgery on Friday and is recovering, um, but, uh, but that was a surprise to all of us as well. And so we have all these things going on. We have the death unexpectedly of loved ones. Some are losing jobs or losing touch with their faith. All ages are losing touch at times with their faith. It's a natural thing. We shouldn't be so scared when that happens because God didn't move. God is there. It's just us needing to reorient what we're doing and how we're, how we're relating perhaps to others and to God. We all are calling, uh, looking for a calling in discipleship. And young adults and old, I find, are visiting Upper Dublin congregation because they're seeking a place that would enliven their discipleship and, and increase their authentic trust in a dynamic, reconciling God who gathers all people of all races with equal rights and vibrant, unconditional love and where there's a church community that needs their gifts and will be open to letting them grow and use them to make a difference in our broken world. I pray that in 2015, Upper Dublin can rise again to that challenge, to be a diverse people who don't look the same, who don't share all the same opinions or viewpoints, but who claim their identity from Christ alone, a people who embody his humble Christmas joy and hope and grace upon grace and new life as their prologue to frame the action of their life every day. I close with Max Lucado, another wonderful author, who writes in his little book, Let the Journey Begin, about the strength of God's love. He puts it in, in this way. Can anything make me stop loving you? says God. Watch me speak your language. Sleep on your earth and feel your hurts. Behold the maker of sight and sound as he sneezes and coughs and blows his nose. You wonder if I understand how you feel? Look into the dancing eyes of the kid in Nazareth. That's God walking to school. Ponder the toddler at Mary's table. That's God spilling his milk. You wonder how long my love will last? Find your answer on a splintered cross on a craggy hill. That's me you see up there. Your master, your maker, your God, nail-stabbed and bleeding, covered in spit and sin-soaked. That's 
your sin I'm feeling. That's your death, I'm dying. That's your resurrection, I'm living. That's how much I love you. And now follow me into the world. Merry 10th day of Christmas. Amen.